passage. It's 1 John and chapter 2 and from verse 7 to 17. Behold, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. A little bit of church history for you. Jerome was a scholar and Bible translator in the fourth century. And he tells us that John, the writer of these letters, when he was frail and elderly, was carried into the church at Ephesus. And he would say, little children, love one another. When asked about this, John said, it is the Lord's command. And if this is all you do, it is enough. He was really the apostle of love and he carried this life message of loving one another. This is a very pastoral letter with the theme of love and light, as you know. And it's peppered with very family language like little children, dear children, brother, young men, fathers. Don't be put off by the masculine language here. The truths actually are of all God's children and all ages. This letter has a powerful message. We always need to be reminded to love one another. This is why it is one of our key values as a church. The theme of love in this letter are not the ramblings of an elderly man, but the message from the heart of God. This was a, a circular letter that would have gone out from Ephesus to the churches in the area. Ephesus was a trade center in its day. And this was where Paul the Apostle planted this church. He planted it in a city that was full of pagan, idolatrous, superstitious, and occult practices. So the church was under pressure from the world around. And I want us to concentrate our thoughts today on these, this little section towards the end of what I read. Do not love the world or the things of the world. This church was facing a number of false 
teachers, even at the end of the first century. And Jesus, of course, warned his disciples that this would happen. False teachers that were coming against the church, as we've already heard from Si a couple of weeks ago, were called the Gnostics. I call them the naughty Gnostics because they were teaching things that were clearly unbiblical. I make light of them calling the naughty Gnostics, but actually they caused the church in that day uh, a number of problems. They were basically teaching that the spirit in a person is good and the physical body is evil. Now that's nonsense because right at the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis 1, God created male and female, men and women, and God saw that all he made was very good. He didn't say it was okay. He said it was very good, so our bodies are very good. They're not evil. The Gnostics, you see, were trying to shape the gospel with a new revelation. They claimed to have superior knowledge and experience, which meant they no longer sinned. Always beware of someone who says they have a new revelation. You may discover new revelations in in the Bible that you haven't seen before, but Jesus is the complete revelation from the Father. Scripture tells us not to add or take away from its commands. So John's message is, live in a real world, be a light in the real world, and John has some powerful things to say about us living separate and holy lives. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In John's mind here, it is very black and white. If you love the world, then you don't have the love of Father God within you. You're walking in darkness, he says. The two things are mutually exclusive. You cannot love God and the world. You cannot walk in the light of God and in holiness and tolerate sin. We need to understand that John, what John means here by the world. Do not love the world. Because actually he penned those famous words, didn't he? For God so loved the world. The meaning of the world in this sense is clearly the human race. The word that's used here is cosmos, which sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Which means the physical world, this planet and all that's in it, this beautiful creation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of. But the meaning of cosmos, the world in this passage, is the ordered world around us, the organized system of our society. And this includes the forces that would deny and remove God from our culture and society. The world, in this sense, is all that rebels against God. So we can say all activity which is opposed to God and those human forces or otherwise that try and stop the worship of Father God are the world. That's what John is talking about here. Now, sometimes Christians have withdrawn completely from the world. They've excluded themselves and become recluses. When I lived in Canada in 2010, I lived in Ontario, and in that region, it was populated by quite a number of Mennonite communities. And Mennonites love God, they're believers, but they live under really, really strict rules. They're mostly farmers and try to live self-sufficiently. Some of the strict ones just wear 
black completely. The women cover their heads. The more strict have no electricity in their homes, no phones. They drive black horse-drawn buggies, as they're called. They only marry within their community. They take do not love the world to an extreme, which I don't think is biblical. At other times, Christians behave as if they're no different from the world. Their behavior is undistinguishable from the world. Lifestyles that are no different to non-Christians. Clearly, these two extremes are, I believe, unbiblical. James picks this up in his epistle as well. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? I think this is why John refers to darkness earlier in this passage. You're in a dark place if you're friends with the world. These are really strong words, aren't they? And we need to uh, take note of them and not water them down. Some of us tend to think we, well, we, we'll be a little bit friendly with the world. But there's a tension there for us to keep because we don't want to seem abnormal, but we must be different. In verse 16, John helps us to understand more of what he means by being in the world. We have three things outlined here for us. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So these are the sinful internal responses, internal reactions to stimuli and people and situations around us. Jesus said what comes out of a man's heart is what makes him unclean. It's a heart matter. Let me read to you Mark chapter 7. These are Jesus' words. Mark chapter 7 and verse 20. Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of the man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You see, these things are not so much about what you do, what you wear, where you spend time or visit. It's all about what's going on in your heart and our motivations. Ungodly desires that are rampant and pride in our hearts is the issue here. It's about our motives, our attitudes, our will. These things will always result in actions at some point if they're in our hearts. Ungodly desires can look so attractive. They lure us into thinking. They will bring us freedom and liberation and self-fulfillment. In the book of Genesis, Eve fell for that lie. The fruit seemed good to look at, good to taste, even desirable. The outcome was not. So let's have a look at these three things that John highlights here. The desires of the flesh, or the cravings of the flesh, your Bible may say. These can grow in our hearts insidiously and become out of control. They're like weeds in your garden. If you're a gardener, they're a pest, aren't they? And they can just grow insidiously. Now, God 
has given us natural appetites, of course. Hunger for food, sexual appetites, a desire for satisfaction and fulfillment in life. And these of themselves are not evil desires. Do you know, you cannot last more than four days without water, more than 40 days without food. These appetites and desires sustain us, don't they? And of course, sexual desires expressed within marriage often lead to fruitfulness, continuing family lines and future generations. Things go wrong when we crave these appetites to be satisfied in excess or in a way that is against God's commands. When we break those natural and universal laws, the way that God designed us to live, we can end up living a life of constantly wanting, wanting, wanting. One commentator I read used the analogy of a goldfish, which is quite happy in a bowl where it can swim around and live in the water as God designed it to, either in a bowl or in a fish pond. But the goldfish don't, don't last too well on a, gar- on a living room carpet, do they? That is not how they're created to live. If you're controlled by selfish, ungodly desires, then you're not free. It's like you're trying to live on the living room carpet. If you suffer with compulsions or addictions, you're not free. You're under the control of those desires, be they thoughts or greed or even foolishness, as Jesus said in that Mark passage. Ungodly appetites and desires, when out of control, are like uncaging a lion. And things get a bit messy when lions are uncaged. Peter says, doesn't he, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. You're walking in darkness, to use John's earlier language. What happens when you walk in darkness? Well, you're, you're blinded, you're unaware of your surroundings, and you will stumble. If you get up in the night without putting the light on, you stub your toe. It's walking around in darkness. David Jackman said, in every generation, the church is challenged by the world, either to confront or absorb its culture, to be squeezed into its mold. We are therefore in danger of not challenging that which is in the world that the world throws at us, just accepting and accommodating ungodly culture without questioning it. We are called to say no to the temptations of the world. So the next thing, the desires of the eyes. In John's world in Ephesus, and in our world too, the desires of the eyes would have been watching things that were sinful for pleasure, so debauchery, pornography, and violence. And all of these have reached alarming proportions in our society today and are all freely accessible with the added ease of secrecy of your bedroom over the internet. Desires of the eyes invokes jealousy. This affects men and women, young and old. None of us are immune. It's that I see it, I want it, so I must have it. At times, it's not easy for us to recognize this thing. It sort of somehow creeps up on us. I was thinking about Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. 
In the early church, some disciples were selling land and property and bringing the proceeds to the apostles uh, to distribute. Ananias and Sapphira held back some of their money. They were not acting with integrity, and they suffered fatal consequences. They not only had physical heart issues, they had spiritual heart issues. They saw, they wanted, they kept. The message is clear. We cannot love God and the world. And then thirdly, the pride of life. Pride is a sin. Boasting of what we have, be that possessions or money. Psalm 62 says, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. They're wise words, aren't they? The love of money is... Um, the love of money is often more of the problem when you have more than you need. So beware. Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. But we can have pride in other things, can't we? Such as looks, personality, intellect, gifts, talents, your profession, lifestyle, accomplishments. We can be overly concerned about our possessions, our property, our status, our image the impressions we are making, exalting ourselves over others in some way. These are all signs of pride in our hearts. Jesus, when he was on this earth, as a man, suffered all of these temptations, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we read about them in Matthew 4, and you may be looking at that in your life group this week. So both pride and jealousy can lead to bitterness and end up with us hating and despising other people. John says you cannot hate your brother. You're living in darkness, walking in darkness, and you don't know where you're going because you're blinded. But then, you know, in verse 17, we see the absolute futility of these things because the world is passing away along with its desires. So all of these temptations, these pressures that come against us, they're transient in the light of eternity. So what is the good news in this passage? Because I can see you're all very serious and taking it in. What is the good news in the pa this passage? What is the answer to us keeping our desires in their proper and godly place? How do we guard our hearts? Verse 12 says, know your sins are forgiven. Through the cross, through Jesus' suffering for us, we are brought into relationship with Father God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus has fully dealt with all that separates us. We can come to him because we are no longer orphans, but we are God's children, as John says. Therefore, we have access to the power of of the cross over the desires of the flesh, desires of our eyes and our pride. We can know and appropriate the power and forgiveness of the cross through repentance and faith. We never mature to a point, you see, where we no longer need to repent. We will continue to sin while we're on this earth. You know, our thoughts and our heart attitudes, those are things that we don't do that we should do, and our actions. See, those Gnostics were wrong. There is no level of attainment where you no longer sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. John said this in the previous chapter. So each time we sin, we are able to run quickly to our Heavenly Father, to repent and ask for the cleansing blood of Jesus to come wash us again. And I want to encourage you, don't delay. Keep short accounts with God. Deal with any darkness within and live free. You know, when your eyes linger longer, then deal with it. The message of the New Testament was very clear. Repent and believe. One of the great frustrations I, I have is when I see my brothers and sisters in Christ not fully dealing with things in their lives. I've had so many conversations over the years where we seem slow to deal with you know, those things that come against us. Be that freedom from fear or anger or rejection or worry or more specific things like pornography, greed or jealousy. What stops people keeping right with God is, is basically our pride. Let's be radical, removing what needs to be removed by the power of the Spirit. We're given that through the cross. Jesus died that we could be free from our sin. His blood was shed for our cleansing. Your lust can be dealt with. Your wantings can be dealt with. His wounds were there for our healing. Come on, let's receive all that God has for us. Because Jesus truly is our rescuer. We no longer have to live with baggage. We sing those words from one of our songs. You laid down your life that I would be set free. Jesus laid down his life so that we can be free from the world. Let's appropriate that. Let's live with that. Let's live with the reality of that. Let Jesus' death, what he fully uh, gave for us, be appropriated totally in our lives. The second thing that I see there is no Jesus as Lord of all. In verse 13, John says, I'm writing to you because you know him who was from the beginning. We are saved and delivered from all darkness as we deepen our relationship with Jesus as Lord. Jesus who was and is and is to come. Jesus who is the same yesterday, today and forever. We no longer have to set our affections upon ungodly things. When we set our affections upon him, we are free. We are free indeed to direct our love towards the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 19, um, it tells us that those who practiced magic arts brought their books and burned them in the sight of all. You know, sometimes we need to do something a bit radical. Sometimes we need to do something a bit different. I'm not saying burn your books, unless they're books you shouldn't have. But sometimes we need to put markers in the sand and be a little bit radical. I think we're a bit, bit soft at times. We don't deal with things. We don't truly make Jesus Lord. We go for second best so often. James 4 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Such powerful words. But then this is the bit I love. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I don't know about you, but often when I mess up, I want to run away from Jesus. I don't physically, but in my heart, I just want to withdraw. Oh dear, I've messed up. 
When we mess up, we shouldn't run away. We should run towards him. Make him Lord again. Living intentionally. Pursuing that daily walk with Jesus. Crowning him Lord of all. Then thirdly, know that you are an overcomer. This is uh, repeated in verse 13 and 14. We can know victory over Satan's accusations, his traps, his temptations, his activity. We can know victory from the enemy's evil grip. He no longer has power over us. Do I hear an amen? We are no longer downtrodden or defeated. We are the head and not the tail. We are overcomers by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus. We can live transformed lives. God will give us keys to being an overcomer, and that is very individual for you. I um, suffered sometimes with repetitive thoughts, particularly if I wake up at night. Can't get things out of my head. Don't know, do you suffer with that? You just get on a, oh, and it just keeps coming, you can't deal with it. You know, I found the name of Jesus breaks the power and the cycle of those thoughts. We overcome, you see, with the word, by the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. So can I challenge you to ask God for specific keys for you to be truly an overcomer with the things that come against you, the things that you struggle with, be that greed or addictions or immorality or whatever it is. Because we are called to be overcomers, young and old. Even youths, we sung it this morning, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. I've got this on my study wall. I love it. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That's what we're born for. We're born of God and we're born to fly like eagles. Eagles are stupid when they try and walk on, on the ground. They're born to fly. They're born to soar. And we're given that right and that power as overcomers to fly like eagles. Amen. Skip over to 1 John chapter 5. I'm stealing someone else's verses here, but hey-ho. They'll forgive me. <clears throat> 1 John 5 verse 4 says, For whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. There's huge power in knowing Jesus intimately and to be an overcomer. You see, our belief and our behavior need to be lined up. We mustn't love the world. Resist ungodly desires because we serve a holy and awesome God. And we need to remember that. And let us walk with the freedom of the love and light of the gospel as rescued children. Amen. Can I invite the worship team to come back um, up onto the stage? We're going to sing a song. And I want to invite you um, to come forward and just to put right what you need to put right. Um, sometimes, I said earlier, we, sometimes we need to take a radical action, a bit of radical action. And actually, 
physically coming forward and saying, yes, I'm going to again today make Jesus Lord of my life. I'm going to come against these things in the world that would um, try and beat me, try and push me down. And I'm going to fly like an eagle again. I'm going to be that overcomer. So I, I want to encourage you to, to come forward just as a mark of that. I'm going to ask the holy... Oh, I'm going to ask the healing house team, the holy house team, the healing house team uh, to come and be over there. Um, and if you want prayer afterwards, you can, you can go to them for some prayer. But this is essentially between you and God. And coming forward today is a marker in the sand. I'm going to again make Jesus Lord. I'm going to overcome all that's come against me. Um, be that this week or whenever. So during this song, don't hold back. Just come forward and then I'll pray for you. And uh, then if you want further prayer, um, we can do that. So can we all stand?